When it comes to jazzing up a film score, filmmakers go to British composer Daniel Pemberton. After writing notes that literally reinvigorated The Man from Uncle and Ocean's 8, Pemberton is back as Warner Bros. go-to guy with a bluesy score for Edward Norton's 1950s noir, Motherless Brooklyn. But jazz isn't all that Pemberton does. Rather, he straddles various genres between techno and Steve Jobs and classical and Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World. Pemberton also has a rock and roll score in store for Warner Brothers' upcoming Birds of Prey. He's here with us today on Crew Call. You are sublime with jazz. Um, The Man from Uncle, um, Ocean's 8, this. And I'm curious, when you are putting these scores together, um, is it is it a riffing is it a riffing thing where you get your buddies together and you're like, hey, let's jam. I'm going to lead with a couple of chords, or are you before you even gather musicians in the studio? Are you like note for note written down? Every score is quite different, but normally. It starts with me, you know, doing the equivalent of writing it down at the beginning. I've always kind of wanted to do a score where it's like, hey, let's just jam this out and get something. But actually, having tried that, I've found that you don't end up with stuff that has the focus you need for, like, film scoring. So I normally write things out quite specifically, sometimes incredibly specifically, where, like, like ex- drum parts are like exactly scored or some things where it's like, here is, here's what I want. How can you make it better? Um, but from like a melodic musical kind of sense, it's normally starts off quite specific. Tell, um, tell me about your origins with jazz and, and because you're so brilliant with it and it, it and I, I'm continually coming back to it with you and I, I know you do more than that. Steve Jobs was a brilliant techno score, and um, all the money in the world was, uh, you know, had a be- beautiful classical sense to it. Um, and but w- w- what is it? D- did you were, were you playing jazz as a kid? I mean, I don't know because I'm not really like a you know I'm not a, a a big jazz guy. I just guess a lot of my scores are based around rhythm and groove and you know that's kind of the underpinnings in some ways of jazz so i think that's one of the things that excites me like like writing i love i love rhythm and i love how that can propel a story and especially with you know like certain people i've worked with like you know i've done a couple of aaron sorkin movies and rhythm's incredibly important in those in terms of like providing something for dialogue um, like a bed underneath it. So I, I just kind of feel it's just one of those things that I've just ended up, you know, doing a lot of because I, you know, I find it kind of an exciting part of a film score. Cause I was like, cause I was wondering about you. I'm like, I'm, I'm wondering if he played with the jazz band or something. He's got these great stories about playing. No, I'm like, my rhythm's and, rubbish. And there's, like, there's this, there's this sub jazz scene in London going on. Yeah. And, and, um, I think I'm good at absorbing stuff. And so, you know, I just, I, I sort of absorb things not at an expert level, but a level that gives me a way of doing something in my own style. Um, you know, it's like I'm not good enough to copy anyone else, so it just ends up sounding a bit more original. 
So tell me about um, meeting up with uh, Edward Norton on Motherless Brooklyn here. How how soon did he bring you in? Was it at the beginning so, or were you toward more toward post? No, I came quite late in this, like for me. Like normally I like to get involved right from the start on a film. Um, but, you know, in this film, I just finished Spider-Man into Spider-Verse and I was exhausted and I didn't want to do any more work. I kind of didn't really want to do this film because I just wanted a holiday. I agreed to meet Edward literally the few hours after I'd finished the very f- final minutes of recording Spider-Man because um, he was in town and I kind of thought I might get a free cocktail out of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I met him at like, I think 1am at the Chilton Firehouse in London in the bar. And, and then within about half an hour of chatting to him, I was like, ah, shit, I got to do this movie because he's fascinating. I love everything he's saying. He is. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I love what he was trying to do with the movie. And, his approach and I kind of thought oh, I could write a really interesting score to this as well so I kind of felt oh, I've got to do it and then yeah and then there we go and then went straight back in what were the I mean what were the keywords like did he bring up Chinatown Jerry Goldsmith or Bernard Herman no weirdly he didn't bring up I mean he brought up uh, we talked about this a couple of times but he brought up Vangelis which uh in, in our meeting and that was the moment for me actually where I was suddenly like oh this is interesting because uh, we started talking about Chariot Sophia you know and you'd think if you're doing a noir film even if you're talking about Evangelis you talk about Blade Runner uh, but, but you know you'd expect I'm doing a noir film so we'll talk about the Chinatown score no we talked about Chariot Sophia and that was the moment I thought this is a really fascinating director because Chariot Sophia was seen as a slightly uh, it's a bit of a punchline of a score, I, I feel, for a lot of people, which is very unfair because it's an amazing score and it's an incredibly brave decision, I think, for someone to make a period drama and score it using synthesizers. And for me, that's always what cinema is about, is about brave decisions and and creating new emotions rather than reheating old ones which i think you know there's a there's a lot of things where we're just reheating old experiences and so anyone who could recognize the vis- the musical vision of a director in chats of fire is very exciting to me because it's it's not a trendy choice it's not a choice someone's doing it because they think it makes them look cool or clever it's because they understand what music can bring to a, a film and how you can transform a film into something bigger than what you're seeing through music. So as soon as he said that, I'm like, I'm in. And then we talked about Vangelis for ages, which I can do for a long time. But he wasn't looking for... Uh, no, he, 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 he wasn't looking for like a synthesized score. He was just looking for something that, that viewed the subject matter from a different angle in the same way Chats of Fire viewed you know, a sort of period English uh, drama from a different angle. And so we started talking about, well, how can we look at Motherless Brooklyn from a different angle? How do we not go straight down the route of a conventional noir score? And how can we twist that? How can we sort of take that world, but from a different perspective? And, you know, so we started having a big discussion about it. And I think one of the things 
you know, we early on decided was like there's no point in going too far away from the world of the film. You know, we could do all on synthesizers or something, but at the core of this film is jazz music. You know, it's a, it's an integral character of the film. And, you know, because we have a character in it who's a trumpeter, we have this club, the rooster, which is a big part of the story. So the film is like steeped in, in jazz. So I was like, well, and it's a period film as well. So I was like, why don't we take the sounds of the period and the time and the world and the instrumentation, but then let's approach that from today, like a modern approach. So I wanted to limit the palette of instrumentation to pretty much the instruments you see in the film most of the time, which is trumpet, saxophone, double bass, piano, and drums. But then I wanted to approach that as if I was a modern film composer trying to write a score today. And that meant I wanted to try and sort of stick those instruments through a like more modern digital process. You know, like I, I got to say, like Miles Davis was doing stuff now. He was always into doing the new thing. And he was always into experimenting and trying to come up with something new. And I think he would have tried a very similar, you know, if he was around now, he'd be messing around with sampling echo boxes i mean he was doing echo boxes in his time anyway but like the exciting possibilities that like modern digital sound world offers um for composing you know are limitless and it was exciting to jump into those and then try and reincorporate more traditional jazz writing around it that's interesting because when i hear it i i hear it very uh like sincere instruments, like yeah. like the real thing, like the soft drums, the the high pierced horns, yeah, uh, the the piano. Everything seems very organic. Yeah, well, the idea is that everything in the score feels organic. Nothing feels electronic. Everything feels like it comes from that time. But very early on, one of the things I did was I did a big bunch of workshops with this great saxophonist in london called thomas challenger i heard the crazy sax yeah i heard the crazy sax in one and so that was a lot of things like trying to build like loops and textures and techniques through that and then right for that build build sort of stuff that's almost in the background there's loads of stuff in this score that's in the background that you don't notice that's like very subtle but just changes the tone of the score and makes you feel something different like even the main one of the main themes, which is called Woman in Blue, which is when you see Gugu's character, uh, Laura, for the sort of first time, is a quite a haunting saxophone um, motif. And in some ways, that's one of the more conventional musical cues. But underneath that is a instrument called a, I can't even pronounce it properly, Odes Martino, which is a sort of very early theremin style instrument. And you are not going to recognize that in the score. It's very, very quiet, but it bends behind the saxophone, doubling the saxophone line, and creates a slightly otherworldly presence to that saxophone.
And if you listen to score close up, you'll hear it. But a lot of the time I'm trying to double sounds on unusual instruments to make something that feels familiar also feel alien. And I always feel that's how you get a kind that, that's what makes you as a viewer lean into something and absorb it better because you're hopefully hearing something that doesn't feel like something you've heard before. So a lot of the the pieces in this will have textures or sounds behind them that are more unusual, but often quite subtle. There's even like gramophone static through a lot of this score. And that's just a very, and it's not a big part of the score, but it's just a very light bit of texture that takes you back, hopefully, that era bit. And, you know, we see gramophone records in the, in the, in the film. They're referenced a bunch of times. But it also provides a really interesting bit of, like, scratchy texture to, like, help Lionel's brain, which is very scratchy and, you know, it's flitting the whole time and it's very restless. You know, typically we think of noir score. We think wall to wall. Was that was that a discussion here? Did that have to go all, all the way through? Yeah, or mostly wall to wall. I mean, I I don't like most film composers don't like wall to wall scores unless they're only concerned with their vaulty checks. <laughs> and this is two and a half. And this is close to two and a half hours. Um, I'm always like, for me, it's like. It's like food. If I always say, like, if you go to a great restaurant and they bring you 20 courses, by the end of it, you're just going to be like, I don't care. I don't want to eat any more food. Whereas if you space them out, maybe it's just five courses. Each of those courses is going to taste amazing because you haven't had it. You haven't just filled yourself up. So I'm always pushing to try and have less music and have it have a bigger impact. And that can also be sometimes how you write. Sometimes you want to hold back uh, more melodic cues and have stuff that's a bit more sound designy or atonal so that when those things hit, they are, um, they have a bigger impact. Again, it's a bit like being a chef where you're like, you know, if you're going to some fancy restaurant, they're going to give you a little amuse-bouche in between that's maybe going to cleanse your palate. And sometimes you'll have score cues that do that. And so I'm always trying to look for the biggest hits I can emotionally and try and give them the most impact. And that sometimes that means trying to hopefully starve the audience of music beforehand. And sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes you need a lot of music just to keep the momentum or what's going on in the picture. But in an ideal world, I prefer to hold it back. And 
you know, there's a lot of music in this film. There's also a lot of silence. The um, was was what was your impression when you watched it um, as far as the character that Norton plays? He's he's a quirky he's a quirky guy, but you feel for him because he's because of um, his Tourette syndrome. Yeah, I mean, the first time I saw this movie, that was the the like the first big challenge was like how how do we encapsulate Edward's character Lionel like he's like really fascinating character because he's got this very like restless mind that's sort of flitting all over the place he can be quite like you know funny sometimes unintentionally and you you know you really feel for him and so I was like a lot of the time I'm trying to score this looking through his perspective like through his head and you know you've got a lot of slightly dissonant jazz influences you've got drums that never really land on a particular groove they're moving around a lot um, and trying to find music that doesn't always land in a conventional sense meant you had this sense of being in Lionel's head where it's never he's always moving from one thing to the next and if you watch the film the, the moments when it does land musically when actually you know what it becomes um, more satisfying music from a musicality point of view those are the moments when there's serenity in his head like when he's often it's to do with the character Laura when he's seeing her or with her his mind settles down and those are the moments when you get these these kind of like breakout musical moments and you know when you're watching a film hopefully no one's clocking that but they will subconsciously clock that you know there's a different they're feeling somewhat different and that's because they're looking through Lionel's Lionel's mind and when when he's correct me if I'm wrong when his head is spinning when you know he's trying to figure something out yeah who killed Frank yeah that's it's like a scat chat. Not scat. It's almost not, uh, yeah. The music. I mean, the music is turning itself over and over and over. Right. It's, it's like it's like convoluting. It's like spinning around, and you know you're trying to like get inside his head because you can't get inside his head visually. You know you can see him uncomfortable, but the music is what hopefully takes you inside Lionel's head, and that's kind of like one of the big parts of it. Hopefully for the score. Is it, is it allows you to experience it as he experiences it. What was one of the cha- most challenging sequences for you? The most challenging sequence, without doubt, is the big chase at the end through Harlem. Because Edward had shot this sequence with Winton Marcellus's band, who, who, you know, who, who are fantastic and you know, a big part of, of the story of the film. And they are performing in the club. And he'd shot these scenes and edited it and then was like, can you just make everything look like the, the band are playing the music? And I'm like, uh, yeah, it's quite tricky. <laughs> um, and so we had this mad challenge of having these shots of a band play trumpet, double bass, drums, and have to write a cue that's like retroactively over these shots that makes it feel like these shots are all natural. So you spent ages just looking at how the players are moving their fingers, and you'd be like, I've got to hit a note on every one of those shots. Same with the drummer. 
Same with the trumpet player. So I have to write based on what I'm seeing visually on screen, but I've still got to do it within the context of a huge cue that's like, I don't know, a six-minute chase cue. And that was very difficult to try. It's like a puzzle where you're trying to build something backwards. And, yeah, that was, like, super... I'm really pleased how that turned out. It's turned out really good, but it was, like, that was, like, a mega challenge because the whole point of it is you watch it and you're never going to think it's in any way difficult but it was like really complicated because it's like trying to find the one key the one like way into this chamber of of a queue um that's going to hit these points and not feel convoluted or like these things are just shoved in there Is every film like that? Does every film have its obstacle or it depends? It just, oh, yeah. I mean, every film's got a different challenge. Well, all the money in the world, you had to remind us again. They did the film. Yeah. And then they, they did the first cut they, with Kevin it. Spacey. Yeah. I mean, that weirdly, that wasn't as much of a challenge. Did, as, did you have to write new – I forgot. Did you have yeah, to write new score? Little, we did a few little tweaks, but, you know, like that was probably much more of a challenge for Ridley than it was for me um, in the – you know, I mean, like he's a super genius and relishes the chance to show all the young whippersnapper directors that like he can do everything. Um, but for me on that film, like I didn't have the same challenges that he faced. You know, he was with me when that the day that happened, like and he was not happy, shall we say. <laughs> Uh, and that was really weird to be mixing that film and we're literally playing back the, the, the mix and um, yeah he was he was kind of he was kind of pissed off like that day <laughs> when when a film goes through testing does that impact the score like do you ever get notes oh yes do moviegoers really like really well, do it on score? It, it's not, yeah, what well, they do, but it's or not. Or is what, it more, more or less the sequence? It can and be, then, and then, and then they release the sequence or something, and then you've got to. It, it can be anything. Like the weird thing about making movies is there is no, like, like here's the road map from A to Z. It's like the whole time you've got to be on your toes, improvising, like working out solutions. I mean, just going back to Ridley, I think one of the reasons. He, I don't want to say he relished redoing that movie because he wouldn't have done, but like, I think he relishes a challenge. Like everyone in, especially around Ridley's camp, it's all like, right, how are we going to do this? Let's just make this happen. And I, I think a lot of movies is about being able to adapt very quickly, being able to like think on your toes, do a million different things. Like something comes up, you're like, right, I've got to work out how we're going to deal with this. Like, right now on a another movie, which I'll keep quiet, but, like, I'm, you know, I'm rewriting some score to do with some scene changes. I'm FaceTiming a rapper in uh, Atlanta. 
um, while they're recording things and trying to give them notes on how to make it work better for sequence. Um, and you're always moving between, like the goalposts are always moving, and especially if a movie's testing a lot, uh, that's always going to have, unless all the tests are fantastic, there's always going to be something thrown up in that. The um, now, do you work with some of the same musicians? On like, you know, like, did you have some of the same guys on Man from Uncle that you did on Oceans that you did on Motherless Brooklyn? Yeah, I mean, I have a, like a bunch of great musicians I work with in the UK a lot. Um, uh, so you know, like, there's a guy called Mike Smith, and he played drums on some of Man from Uncle, and he also played drums on Motherless Brooklyn. Uh, you know, Mother's Brooklyn, we also had, you know, Winter Marseilles from New York, you know, one of the great jazz trumpeters of our time playing on the score, which was like a super honor because Edward's got the most amazing um, phone book of people who he knows and the people who like him. And uh, he was like, we can get Winter Marseilles on your score. I was like, really? Holy shit. Uh, and so for that, you know, we recorded a bunch of stuff in London and then me and Edward jumped on the plane and went over to New York and recorded a whole bunch of stuff as well with Winton's band and with Winton. He's got a great saxophonist as well called Ted Nash, who played like some beautiful stuff in the film. Uh, Ocean's Eight, I had to record the whole score in New York. So I had to, I worked with a bunch of New York musicians, but also a great UK guitarist called Leo Abrahams, who works with me on a lot of scores. And, you know, I mix it up. It's like, it's a bit like being a director where you have your favorite actors, you know, that you love casting the whole time and like new surprises. Did, um, did it, now how, how big was, how big was your set here for, um, for motherless Brooklyn? Was it, was it mostly like 10 musicians or was it, were you as large as 30 or 40? No, it all varies. I mean, a lot of it was down to, like, you know, the key lineup of Motherless Brooklyn is about five or six people. But then there are other elements where there's, there's like, some more experimental stuff in there. So there's things like these kind of atonal wind clusters, which is about sort of 12 woodwind players sort of playing these textual ideas that, like, a lot of the things I try and do, I try and not give any credence to the orchestra is the most important thing. Uh, you know, like this idea that more numbers makes it more important. Like I don't buy into, I'm always into what I look at everything as its own sound. So like the sound of me, like just opening this, okay. Sound of me shaking this bottle of water could be more exciting in a film than a 70 piece orchestra or vice versa. But it's like, it's trying to find, like something special from every everything so in, you know in motherless we have like you know we've got that we've got like probably about 30 piece string section as well doing some stuff which i call more to do with the corruption of new york and the unseen forces of like um moses randolph and he's this kind of shadowy character who it turns out has a big grip on the city and you don't you can't see that when you're in the city you can't see his power and so i wanted this music that felt like this unseen dark depths of power and for that size and scale i wanted an orchestra because like you know i wanted to feel the 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 size of that which is you know as as he says the, the 
Willem Dafoe's character says, you know, the power's bigger than one man. And so I wanted a, a, a sound that had a sound that was bigger than one man, whereas a trumpet is the sound of one man. And this is all circa ni- 19, which it takes place in 1950s. Yeah. But the jazz that you're pulling from is, is or that you're, you're inspired by, is it more oh, 40s or is it? Oh, I'm just making it up. You know, it's like, no. I'm like, like the thing I love about jazz is I'm like, jazz for me is like painting with sound. Like there's an abstraction to jazz that I think is very exciting. Because there's a beautiful retro. That's, that's. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, it's, you know, you associate, you know, you say, you associate those sounds often with a certain time period. I mean, you can write new stuff now. It's like, and it, it's the filter through which that goes. If I was trying to, I, yeah, I wasn't trying to slavishly make. 1950s jazz music i was trying to make you know music inspired by those sounds today that that still feels like it belongs in that world you know if you had that film and you had like a heavy metal score it could be interesting you know it would be interesting but it probably wouldn't feel right and sometimes not feeling right is great because like here's a great example if you did motherless brooklyn with a really intense heavy metal soundtrack if you got it right, it would be amazing because it would make you look at um, all the characters very differently and it would make you address them in a different light. But I don't think it would work. And so that's why I didn't score Marvelous Brooklyn with a heavy metal soundtrack. <laughs> um, the You get to work with Warner Brothers a lot. And I only bring that up because... That's a great thing. It's almost it reminds me of Hans Zimmer back when he was with Dream, he had a streak with DreamWorks. Yeah. Is that just coincidence? Uh, I mean, you're doing Birds of Prey with them next. Yeah, I mean, I've got like, you know, like quite a, quite a long history now with Warner Brothers. They got a really great music department like Paul, Nikki, Darren. Um, you know, and I've been through a lot of uh how shall we say uh, uh uh, I don't say wars, but I've been on some tricky projects, and I think you get to know someone. You know, it's when someone's in a tricky situation you get to know what they're made of. And I think, I guess, they've seen me in lots of tricky situations and have somehow come through to the end. Um, and and they've been great at giving me like a you know a freedom to to do pretty out there scores, you know, and. Once you've done that a few times and it's kind of worked and people are happy with it, it's great because it gives you more freedom to be and then more confidence that, you know, I might try out some idea that might seem a bit stupid and maybe it is a bit stupid. Uh, and in which case, if it is, I can do something else. But they've seen me try out stupid ideas, but stupid in inverted commas, ideas, and they've worked out. And so for me, that's always exciting because... I don't want to do the generic film film score every time. I kind of want to make, you know, I've always wanted to do this thing where you don't know what I'm going to do next. If, if anyone is at all bothered about what I do, which they probably aren't. But if you were listening, if you were following <laughs> what I'm doing, I'd always like to keep people guessing about what that score is going to sound like. The, um, can you tease for us, Birds of Prey, like what, what kind of sound we can expect? Well, Birds of Prey has been a pretty interesting project. And I think what drew me to it is I've never had a a massive hankering to do 
sort of normal superhero movies because I've, I've found there's not a lot of room in them to be musically adventurous. Now, obviously, I did Spider-Man into Spider-Verse, but that, that was looking at that world in such a different light that it gave me great license to be different. And with Harley, like but Harley Quinn, like Birds of Prey, you know, her character is so unique and exciting that I was like, oh, I could actually have some fun with this. You know, I don't have to write generic action music. Here you've got a character who is so rich and um, like has so many different aspects to her personality. She's not like the thing I love about Harley is she's not one personality. She's like 10 personalities. <laughs> and so musically, I can do like 10 different things. And so part of the score I'd say is like, is taking that idea um, and having fun with it. Um, you've also got like the birds of prey who kind of, who I don't know how much I can say about this movie yet, but like they exist or might end up existing in this film. And so you've got different characters there and like trying to do themes from them. And they've got like really fascinating backstories. And so it's been a really exciting project in that sense that you've managed to like have all these different characters and different worlds and bring them together in like a score that can touch so many different bases. I mean, I've been recording like, you know, with like rock bands, acid house, choirs, opera singers, massive string sections, saxophonists. Um, it's been quite a crazy journey, that one. And, and does Kathy, the director, let you run wild? Uh, Kathy has been, you know, really great and really supportive um, of me doing something, you know, that is not the generic superhero sound. And I think one of the things we had a big discussion very early on with her was this thing of, like, how do we, you know, try to encapsulate Harley and and her world you know like there's so many decisions Kathy made in this in this film as a director that you know are like really exciting like the look of it the look of it is like amazing it's so colorful I'm using I love color you know I love Harley's outfits it's like I want Harley's outfits I mean I don't want to dress like a woman but like if you can make some male equivalents um and you know Kathy was also did a lot of interesting stylistic choices where she's explaining to me of how she didn't want it to be like pinpointed in any one moment in time. So there's lots of like incongruous detail, like, you know, like phones that are like not like could be from 10, 20 years ago or something else, which is super of now or something from the sixties. And so you end up with this, this kind of crazy mashup which is kind of like Harley in a way of all these different worlds and styles. And also you see Gotham in the day. It's the first time you've seen Gotham, not at night. Like you always see Gotham city at night and this is the time you get to see it during the day. And it's quite colorful in parts. And I, I was very drawn to the color of both the character and the world. My, my final question is um, when things changed for you as a composer, was it meeting, you know, when, when you, when you hit, when you hit that, that wave and and it's just been nonstop. would you say it was when you met ridley and if so how 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 did you come to work with ridley yeah definitely like ridley was the thing that sort of changed 
everything in a way because here you've got someone who is like one of the greatest filmmakers of our time who could kind of work with anybody has worked with some of the great composers of our time and has produced some of the greatest scores of our time choosing to work with you everyone else is going to be like oh hang on a tick why has he chosen you uh and i remember getting a phone call that, yeah i can remember the day everything changed i was still in bed i get up quite late because i kind of work very late i got a phone call from his editor pietro scalia who's a you know an amazing editor yes and um he was just like come in in an hour let's just do it Ridley just wants to get on with it you're doing the movie and i just i was like oh hang on i just got out of bed like what and this was this was the the counselor the counselor and so i think i just got out the phone had gone and i was like oh, who the hell's calling me at like 9 a.m or something like basically don't call me before 11 a.m is the rule that everyone knows because i'm normally working till like two in the morning and then i just remember like standing in my bedroom kind of a bit confused going oh this is really happening uh oh okay and then shit i've got to get to soho in like like 45 minutes um but basically i'd met ridley i'd met ridley a week before or a couple of weeks before because he wanted to meet me he'd really like a he liked to film i did called the awakening which no one really saw you know, it kind of had a bit of an impact. It's a great film, a film, great director called Nick Murphy, who's just doing a thing with Tom Hardy at the moment, um, Christmas Carol. And um, I, you know, but Ridley, you know, one of the things that's like, I'm also amazing. There's so many things that's amazing about Ridley Scott, but like he's got his finger on the pulse. He's always interested in what the new thing is, who's doing what, like, and he's an absorber of film and culture. And... And he's, he, you know, he's watched this movie and he loved the score. And he's like, I want to meet the, you know, he really liked the score. And he, like no one else, like, you kind of think, hey, when you do a good score, you expect the phone's going to start ringing like 10 minutes after it's been in the cinema. But it never does. But he was like, it did. And he said, so I go in to meet him and he's just trying to sound me out. And like, just, I thought I was just going in to meet Ridley Scott, like, because he's got a big company and he just wanted to suss me out. He asked me all these questions, you know. Like, how do I work? Where do I work? What was my history? And, you know, the big thing for me always was that he started going on about, you know, I'd worked in TV in Britain for about, I don't know, 10, 20 years up to this point. Like, just crazy, did anything, scored a million TV shows from, like, great to not so great, shall we say. Um, but always approached them with, like, I just want to learn stuff. And I kind of used British TV as my springboard and my education about film scoring and he got that. He was like, you know, he said, you've done your 10,000 hours in the garage, like in TV. And, and he said, I did the same in advertising. You know, I learned how to direct doing millions of adverts. Each one, you know, teaches me a new skill, teaches me a new approach. And so he kind of saw something in me that I think he'd gone through. And so anyway, I left this meeting and I just thought, well, that was cool. I met Ridley Scott and I've got a really cool story about it and I literally thought that would be it and you know a week or so later you know I'm I'm scoring his new film uh, and then you know from then on it's been pretty crazy and you know I've worked with Ridley a bunch of times since then we just did we just did an amazing advert uh, which just won a bunch of awards like a couple of months ago uh, like this amazing I don't know if you've seen it it's an advert for Hennessy 
called The Seven Worlds. It's like a seven-minute advert. It's like phenomenal. And, you know, it's he's always like a very exciting person to work with, but you've always got to be on your toes. You've got to be ready at like, like that. Now, um, but before we go, what's your setup at home? Do you have... Do you have a staff? Do you have someone that that writes, like even a small staff? If no, people, I have like, like well, I got an assistant for the first time last year towards the end of Spider-Verse. Up to that point, I, I literally didn't have anyone. Um, I got an assistant now who's amazing called Alex. He's very good at chopping up samples for me. I'm very into making, building sample things. So I'll sample things. And, and it was a very long time consuming process which he he is much better at than me. Um, I work from home in an incredibly messy flat with my socks and pants all over the floor that I haven't cleaned up. My kitchen's always a mess. Um, yeah, it's a very unglamorous Hollywood setting. It's literally, I work from like a corner of my flat in London. I still to this day kind of find it amazing and both terrible but also brilliant that I've somehow ended up scoring massive films and still work in the same way I did when I was sort of scoring, you know, British TV half hour documentaries. Um, yeah, that's it. I don't have anyone, you know, I, I don't have anyone writing and I have like ghost writers or anything like that. I'm just doing everything myself and it's, you know, which I love because I want to be over every sound and every note It's exhausting. You know, we're mixing birds of prey right now around the corner and it's like, you know, I've got a fantastic mixer called Sam McKell, who's brilliant. Um, but it's exhausting because you're just over every single thing. You're like, I'll be, you know, spending ages just trying to find like the right tambourine or hi-hat sound that you're not even going to hear in the mix. But I know it's going to make the track a bit better. And and so it's, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I want to do because I'm not really into this job for the money or anything else. I'm just into it for, like, the work. And so for me, the thing I care about most is the work and have I made some good work? Have I, have I pushed myself to do something new? Um, so I'm not... The idea of having, like, a big team of other people who just churn stuff out, you know, and you put your name on it is not really my sort of vibe do you work on more than one film at a time? And I mean by writing. Um, I remember years ago in the uh, DVD commentary of the film Pleasantville, Randy Newman, who was on that, on the audio commentary for that DVD, was saying you could hear parts. I don't know if you know this. You could hear yeah. parts of Bugs Life in Pleasantville and vice versa. And that blew my mind. And I'm like, oh, my God, how is that possible? But do, yeah, yeah, don't do talk to the you, Disney lawyers. <laughs> do, you, um, do you try to just work on one project at a time, start to finish? Or is that – that's just, that's just an impos- that's yeah, just look, impossible? Yeah, I try, I try and work on just one thing at a time. It's very difficult because you have relationships with people or films, films you're on that move like – Technically, I'm not meant to be here. I'm meant to be back in England now. But, you know, we want to do a bit more work on birds. So I'm just like, I want the movie to be the best it can be. I'm on a movie now, Nick's called Enola Holmes, um, which is being directed by Harry Bradbury. And uh, it's got Millie Bobby Brown. It's looking really brilliant. Uh, Technically, I'm meant to be back in England on that. um, And I will be very soon. Um, 
and it's a weird it is a weird juggling act but I try not I, you know I don't want to do I don't want to be one of those people who's doing like four things at once and can't devote the time and attention to them and you know you can sometimes it can be good doing a couple of different things especially if they're different projects and very different projects because you can have energy bounces from one to the other like when I was doing TV it happened a lot and sometimes the energy of a different project of like look like writing music in a different way can bounce you back into something else and I think also because I'm always trying to do scores that are very different like the score to Nola Holmes is going to be 100% different to the score to Birds of Prey um, so that kind of difference can like give you a good energy like just losing your mind in a different way um, but yeah generally I try not to do you know like I'm not trying to sign up myself to millions of films because you can't you know you just can't pay you know I can't pay the attention to the hi-hat sound if I'm doing like four different movies at the same time yeah so you know I kind of it's difficult everyone's got different approaches and you know I guess you know some people have different reasons for being film composers um, but I always think the thing that always sticks out is the work and if you've done good work you know it doesn't matter what the film's like, you know, if you're proud of it, then that's the most important thing. And you think it's got a good impact. And I, I don't really care about doing the biggest box office or the most number of films in a year, but I do care about trying to do the best work of the year. 